Today, Pastor Javen begins a new series on the book of Genesis. We're jumping back in time to explore our origin story. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. I, uh, I love comic book movies. Um, it's something about them. They draw you in because seeing the comic books come to life on the screen is that action, I guess, as a guy like that. But you, it's that superhero, the good, defeating the evil, right? It's just something about that that's, that's, that I love to watch. And um, when the Marvel Universe was created, I kind of got sucked into it. I, I like most of those movies that, that have come out. I, the, um, as much as I would want to, have Jenny like those movies and watch those movies with me. She doesn't, she doesn't like them. Um, it's not her thing. Just, just like, I don't like chick flicks. It's, you know, it's like, so it's like, she has her thing. I have my thing. And then we have our other things that we do together. But anyway, you know, as much as I would love it, she doesn't, but there are some, there are some that she, she kind of, she kind of got involved. She likes Iron Man. She liked Captain America. She liked the Black Panther. But let me tell you why she liked those. The reason why she liked those is because she got in on their origin story. She got in on their origin story. She watched the, the first movies, the origin stories. And then it wasn't just her seeing something happen. She got brought into the story of what was taking place in their life. How everything started and the story of where it is now. Right? Maybe maybe for you, uh, Marvel isn't your origin story. You don't like origin stories in Marvel. Maybe, maybe yours was how... A guy named James Bond became 007. Maybe that's the origin story you like. Maybe yours was how three geeky scientists became dudes that weren't afraid of no ghosts. Maybe that was your, uh, your, your origin story you like. Maybe, uh, maybe yours is how, we, I talked about them last week, how these friends, Ron and Armani, met another guy, this nervous little fellow who found out he wasn't afraid of anything, Harry. Maybe you liked that. Or maybe your origin story favorite is how Darth Vader became Luke's father. Maybe, maybe that's your, maybe, maybe yours is Mike and Sully and how they found out that there's more power in laughter than there is in fear. If you don't have any idea of what I'm talking about, maybe you don't like any, if there's an origin story in a chick flick, I have no idea what that is. I can't relate to you there, but but there's something about origin stories. The point is that they are an important role because they don't just let you see where things are in the story. They let you see how things begin in the story. As we're starting a series today, we're jumping into the book of Genesis and we're going to look at our origin story. We're going to look at humanity's origin story. We're going to look at creation's origin story, God's origin story, as we look at the book of Genesis and see how all this got started. And I want to give you this picture to think about when you jump into scripture and you're looking at scripture. Uh, you can kind of think of things as a big coin funnel. Have you seen these things in like parks and malls and the mall still exists in, in uh, shopping centers, whatever they're called now. You, you see these, fun, they look like this. You put a coin in and they go around and around in the funnel and they go down. And typically what goes in there is used to donate to some type of charitable organization to do some good for somebody. When you get into scripture, scripture starts with the broad scope of the creation of everything, all of creation. It narrows a little. It goes to the creation of humanity. And it puts its focus on humanity because humanity is created in the image of God. And then eventually you see that focus go into a particular people group. And that is the group of the Israelites. That's the nation of Israel. Then you eventually see that focus go to a family line. And it's the line of David. Then eventually you see that family line, the focus go onto one man. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. And you realize that everything that God, everything that's being written through the scripture is all funneling in and pointing to 
Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ does for the whole, for the broad of all of humanity and all of his creation. So when we get in the book of Genesis, we're going to see this as we see God's purposes come to begin to unfold. You're going to see how things begin to lay out. Now, Genesis is the anglicized pronunciation of a Latin word for origin, right? It's the beginnings. And when you jump into Genesis, when you jump into Genesis chapter one, verse one, and you start going into it, you're immediately hit with challenging what we learn in school, right? Of where creation comes from. Is God really the creator of everything or did everything just come about by chance? This is what you're immediately faced with. Now I want to ask you, do you love this planet? This is not a setup question. It's not a gotcha question. Do you, you like the planet? I like the planet I live on. And I'll just explain one example, all right? You know, it gets hot here in the summer. You've experienced the heat of the South, right? The humidity. It feels like you're suffocating when you're outside. The heat is just, we call it unbearable at times. All right. So, well, at least we don't live on Mars where the heat is 333 degrees on average. All right. And Venus on average is 887 degrees in, in heat. So at least we don't live there. Okay. Now maybe you say, I like the cold. I'm a cold weather person. I like the fall. Give me the winter. I can't wait for the summer to be over with. Right. You like the cold. Well, if you like the cold, would you like Jupiter, which on average is a negative 166 degrees Saturn, a negative 220 Uranus. Keep your jokes to yourself. Negative 320 degrees, right? Neptune, negative 330. Pluto, they call it a dwarf planet. I learned it was a planet. Negative 375 degrees. Listen, I like Earth. I'm thankful that God put us here, right? And, and I'm thankful that we have what we have now. I'll take 100 over 333 or 875 or negative 330, okay? I'll take where, where we are. I want to keep my feet on the soil. If you want to be a Jetson, you can be a Jetson, all right? Right on up wherever you want to go. Does anybody get the Jetsons? you remember, remember the Jetsons? I, I used to love the Jetsons when I was a kid. But anyway... But, you know, and those, when you look at the temperatures, that's just temperatures. That's not thinking about other atmospheric dynamics, which go into the, to, to, to life and sustaining life and that kind of thing. So basically there's two popular theories, right? There's creation and there's evolution. Here's the thing about them. They both believe there is a beginning. They both believe there was a cause that led to an effect, right? Science has declared this second law of thermodynamics, which points out that the universe is deteriorating. It's deteriorating very slowly, but it's deteriorating. And what that tells them is if it is deteriorating to an end, then there was a beginning, right? Well, in the Christian faith, through the word of God, we call that beginning and that end God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one that set things in the motion. He'll be the one that brings things to a wrap. Okay? That that's what we believe and we call it God. Here's the thing about both viewpoints. Both viewpoints are stances of faith. Both are stances of faith. One has faith in chance. One has faith in a creator God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse two, the earth was formless and empty and 
Darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now the viewpoint that takes faith in chance says that you believe that in the beginning before creation, there was nothing and out of nothing came what we know came creation with the Christian faith and those of a creationist viewpoint, you had the belief that before creation, there was God and God took nothing and created everything that everything exists through him and exists for him. Right? So of course, then that creates the question. Well, if before all that we know was created, it was just God, what created God? Where did God come from? Well, I'm going to let someone much smarter than me answer that question. I'm going to show you a video clip. Maybe you have seen this circulate when you're scrolling different things, reels, YouTube shorts, because it'll pop up there. But this is a guy by the name of Dr. Kent Hovine. He was in a debate with a guy by the name of, let me make sure I get his name right, Richard Schleiter. Richard Schleiter, he was in a debate with him. But Dr. Kent Hovine uh, is a creationist, believes in God. You're going to hear that. He begins to explain his answer for where did God come from. So listen to this, uh, his response. Your question, where did God come from, assumes that you're thinking of the wrong, uh, obviously it displays that you're thinking of the wrong God. <laughs> because the God of the Bible is not affected by time, space, or matter. If he's, if he's affected by time, space, or matter, he's not good. God. Time, space, and matter is what we call a continuum. All of them have to come into existence at the same instant. Because if there were matter but no space, where would you put it? If there were matter and space but no time, when would you put it? You cannot have time, space, or matter independently. They have to come into existence simultaneously. The Bible answers that in ten words. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heaven, there's space, and the earth. There's matter. So you have time, space, matter created, a trinity of trinities there. Just, you know, time is past, present, future. Space has length, width, height. Matter has solid, liquid, gas. You have a trinity of trinities created instantaneously. And the God who created them has to be outside of them. If he's limited by time, he's not God. The God who created this computer is not in the computer. He's not running around in there changing the numbers on the screen, okay? The God who created this universe is outside of the universe. He's above it, beyond it, in it, through it. He's, he's unaffected by it. So for, and the, I, the concept that a, of a spiritual uh, force cannot have any effect on a material body, well then I guess you'd have to explain to me things like emotions and love and hatred and envy and jealousy and, and rationality. I mean, if your brain is just a random collection of chemicals that form by chance over billions of years, how on earth can you trust your own reasoning processes and the thoughts that you, you think? Okay, so... Your, your, your question, where did God come from, is assuming a limited God. And that's your problem. The God that I worship is not limited by time, space, or matter. If I could fit the infinite God in my three-pound brain, he would not be worth worshiping. That's for certain. So that's the God that I worship. Thank you. And there you go. <laughs> uh, it, maybe he went kind of fast. I go back. You can find it on YouTube. You can just watch it again and listen to it again over and over. There's so much truth in what he's saying. And what he, John Lennox is another guy, he's another creationist that speaks to these types of things. And he, and he echoes uh, what, what he kind of says. He's in an interview that he was doing at UCLA. He was asked the same question about, about this type of stuff. And he said the problem that Richard Dawkins and these other atheists that say that there, is a, there has to be a created God. Well, one, you're going down a rabbit hole because who creates who that creates who that creates who, right? It's just, but, but he makes this comment. He says that presuming a created God is the problem. In Christianity, in the Christian faith, we call created gods idols. 
God is God. He is not created. He was, he is, he forever will be. All right. Again, it's, it's like Hovind said, I don't want a God that fits in the smallness of my mind and my understanding. When Jenny and I first started dating, one of her favorite quotes was, if God was small enough to understand, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. And I loved that, right? So there's certain things about God. We talked about this in the last series. We don't understand every aspect. But now as you go into Genesis, you continue Genesis 1, you go into Genesis 2, you get to this part where people will say, well, this is two different creation accounts. It tells two different ways that creation took place. You've got contradictions. You've got inconsistencies. I would say that's not the case. All throughout scripture, what you see is you see different literary genres throughout scripture. There's different sections that we have in literary in, in, in scripture. You have what we call historical, you have prophetic, you have poetic, you have all these different types of things throughout scripture. Now, even within those sections that we might call historical or we might call prophetic, you have other literary genres sprinkled in. For example, when we looked at the book of Daniel, Daniel was an historic book that looked at the history of Israel and what happened with, with Babylon. But also within the book of Daniel was prophetic because Daniel begins to talk about what's going to happen by God for the nation of Israel and for the world in years to come. Right? I think what we are seeing in Genesis chapter 1 is we are seeing a poetic version of creation. You, it's, you can see it in the style and the language. There's repetition all throughout. For, uh, the, the word let is used 15 times. The word good occurs seven times. So basically, when you look at Genesis 1, it is a p- poetic celebration of God's creating everything. It is the celebration of the who behind creation. When you get into Genesis 2, you're looking at the historical narrative of what happens with creation. Both affirm the fact that God is creator. Both tell the origin story of creation in different literary genres. The goal when Moses wrote this was not to take Genesis 1, for people to take Genesis 1, take Genesis 2, put them side by side and get confused by them and, 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 and contradict the two. Why would an author do that? He is pointing out the fact that it's not how, it's who, right? But that doesn't mean there's not questions. When you talk about six days or seven days, are you looking at seven literal 24 hour periods that we describe days now? Or are you looking at what Peter talks about and says to God, God, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. Is this, is this what we're looking at? Science says that the earth is millions of years old. Where does that line up with what some who believe in creation say? Where do dinosaurs exist in all of this? Right? There's so many questions that line up. There's one thing I want us to, to, to see and I want to point out because I think this does come out pretty clearly from, from the author of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 21, he makes a statement. God created, when he, this is when God started to create living being, living creatures. God created sea creatures, every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. Right? No matter what translation you like, it can read something like this, producing offspring of the same kind or producing according to its kind. That means species creates within species. We don't come from other species. Does that make sense? All right. So I think God, I think the, the scripture is pretty clear on that. But I'm not going to try to answer all those other questions, not just because I'm scared to. But because I don't think when you look at scripture, I don't think that you can come to a dogmatic stance and conclusion on every logistical detail of creation. All right. 
I believe that this is something that theologians and scientists can study together, explore together, look at different viewpoints and learn from them and glean from them. One thing to keep in mind when, when, when you're looking at the creation account in Genesis is there's two words that's used there when it talks about creation. There is the Hebrew word bara, and bara means to create something new out of nothing. Then there's the Hebrew word asa, which to means to bring forth out of. So see, the, the, the question begins to come from what's the time between the bara and the Asa? Even within creationist viewpoints, there are different beliefs in how this takes place. There's an old earth, young humanity belief in creation. I'll give you just a few and I'll give you a very minimalistic explanation of them. All right. Old earth, young humanist humanity. Humanity view that says that the earth was created a long time ago. There was a bara there was a, 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 that, that happened. The Asa happened later on in time, and the Asa that took place, they believe, does happen over six and seven literal days of creation. All right? You've got an older, another old earth view that involves intelligent design that says there was the bara and the Asa of creations, but the Asa happens over times frames, not over 24 literal hour periods, right? Then you've got young earth, young humanity. This probably is what most of you have grown up hearing if you grew up in church, that the earth is not as old as science says it is, that, uh, that the earth was created, there was a bra and there was a saw that all took place uh, within that seven uh, days. And the flood is what changed the topography of the earth and how we know it now and gives it that view. These are all different viewpoints and different ways to look at it. These are just a few. But again, Moses, who most everyone believes wrote this book, and I believe Jesus gives us, speaks to that when, when the gospel tells us that Jesus sat down on the shore side and talked to his disciples and pointed out that how beginning with Moses and the prophets, how all of the scripture and everything that they knew pointed to him. And when he says beginning with Moses, most believe that what he's saying is beginning with the books that Moses wrote, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So beginning with what Moses wrote and what Moses taught, he explains to them how creation and everything that the prophet spoke of up to him points to him. The whole focus of what Moses was writing, again, was not meant to be about how God created, but that God created. And that God created everything from nothing. He created everything and everyone from nothing and from no one. If this kind of stuff intrigues you, you love studying about it, by all means, study it. Research it. Learn as much as you can possibly learn about creation and about about where everything comes from. Study it with an open mind. Study it with your open Bible. That's important in your faith. And if you want to have discussions about it, have discussions with others about it. But do it with maturity. Don't do it just to argue. Do it to discuss. There's a difference when you go to talk to somebody. And you can typically tell when someone's talking to you and they want to actually discuss something or where they just want to argue something. Right? But I don't, I, I don't know that you can be dogmatic on every logistical detail about creation. Here's what we know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created it out of his love. There was nothing but God. And then he created out of love. So if we're arguing and if we're fighting about how God made it, the place that we're living in, then we're violating the point for which he made it. And that's for us to live in community with each other and with him. All right? We're going to see that. So before God, before creation, there was God. 
And God created everything from nothing. He created it out of his love. Now I want us to see this. Go back to Genesis chapter one. Look at verse one again. In the beginning, God, notice a few words that they jump out to us. Created the heavens and the earth. We get to verse two. And it says, the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. And the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then in verse three, he says this, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, when you jump down to verse 26 of Genesis chapter one, it says this, let us make human beings in our image to be like us, right? At the very beginning of our origin story, creation's origin story, we see the Trinity at work in creation. The idea of God as a triune God is something that's very difficult to grasp. I, I understand that completely. And as a youth pastor, when I was a youth pastor at times, and I would listen to teenagers try to wrap their minds around the understanding of a Trinity, it's, it's interesting to hear it. It's even interesting to listen when you get adults around trying to understand the aspect of a Trinity and a God in three persons. But although complicated to understand, it is such a beautiful picture of who God is and a beautiful reality of who God is. He is God the Father. He is God the Son. He is God the Holy Spirit. Each person distinct, yet representing, represented in the other, all compromising one singular sovereign being in God. And you say, well, that is impossible. But again, do you really want a God small enough to fit in your box of understanding? Our finite minds, as as amazing as humanity has shown our minds to be, our finite minds cannot fully comprehend an infinite divinity. There was a a 19th century mathematician. His name was Edwin Abbott. He wrote this book called Flatlands. And basically the story of the book, it's, it's about these small dots. They live in a two-dimensional world, right? And so these dots live in this two-dimensional world. Think just a solid dot on a paper. And the creator behind these small dots is a three-dimensional sphere. Think basketball. Now this creator, this three-dimensional sphere wanted to come into the world of the two-dimensional dots and try to reveal himself to him. But how does that take place? How does he do that? Well, he comes in and he makes himself like them. He makes themselves a two-dimensional, himself a two-dimensional dot. And then when he leaves, you imagine the two-dimensional dots trying to explain to all those that didn't get to experience the three-dimensional sphere that made himself a two-dimensional dot. And how hard it would be for those two-dimensional dots to explain to other two-dimensional dots, a three-dimensional sphere becoming a two-dimensional dot. Are you following me? Exactly. That's the Trinity, and that's how all of this, all of this is. That's the, the, the beauty of God and, and, and the depth of God. So we're looking at this, and we're saying the Trinity is in creation. And, and we pointed out, and, and you saw those words, you know, in the beginning, God, okay, I get that. In the beginning, God's Spirit, it was hovering over the waters, I get that. Why did you have said in a different color? What was important about said? Go with me to John chapter 1, verse 1. John's writing his gospel. Remember, John spent time with Jesus who revealed himself as as one with the Father, right? And told everybody, when you look at the Father, when you look at me, you see the Father. Him and the Father are one. John chapter one, verse one. 
John writes these words. He says, in the beginning. That sound familiar? Sounds a lot like Genesis. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. Listen, God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. John is paralleling the Genesis account. And he's saying that in Genesis, God spoke a word and creation came to be. And what John is telling us is that the word that God used was Jesus. He uses a word logos in the Greek. There were Greek philosophers way before Jesus ever walked this earth. They would use this word logos. Uh, uh, Philosophers, Herculites, I think is how he says his name. There's a bunch of other philosophers. And they would use this to basically describe logos, to describe the order behind the universe. That was how they would use the term logos. John is taking that and he's saying the order is found in a person. Jesus is the creating force behind the universe. The order and, and, and the logic of everything you see is in Jesus. This man that came and walked the earth. John says the word was with God and the word was God. How can that be? How can you be with something and be something at the same time? That's the Trinity at work. Jesus is to the father what a word is to us. In one sense, our words are separate from us, but they are a part of us. There's a story that's told of an 8th century uh, missionary. He was called Timothy I. He was invited by a Muslim caliph to come to the Mecca, their Mecca, and talk about the Trinity. And this caliph basically confronted him and said, if Jesus is God, then that means he's proclaiming two gods, and that's blasphemous. Because Muslim, Islam, they would not believe that. There's one God, there's Allah, right? And so he begins to take the analogy that John uses, that in the beginning was the word, and he begins to break it up and describe it to them in this way. He says, in our world of communication, communication starts with us having a thought. For example, I'm I'm, I'm hot or I'm cold. You have this thought in your mind. And you say you want to express that thought. So you've got to come up with words and the language that you speak to express the thought that you have to the person that you're talking to. Then your vocal cords begin to create vibrations that come out of your mouth that take words from your mouth to the other person's ear. And so Timothy makes this statement. He says, in the act of communicating, you've got three different things. You've got thoughts, you've got words, and you've got vocal vibrations. They're all distinct from one from each other, but yet they all work in one accord in the act of communication. All right? So this is the Trinity at work. Now, John continues his parallel to Genesis when he goes into John chapter 1, verse 4, the very next verse. He continues his parallel to Genesis. And he says this, the word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. Genesis chapter one, verse three, when God said, what did he say? It was the first thing he said. He said, let there be light. John is saying the light and the word are in each other. It is Jesus. Light was the first thing God spoke. 
And Jesus is also the light of the world. Light is fundamental to everything in, the, in this life. Light brings life. Light brings visibility. It brings clarity. It allows us to see what's distinctive about one thing from another. It allows us to see the uniqueness in, some, in other things. Light removes the darkness. Genesis tells us that the world was without form. The earth was without form. It was, without, it was void. It was full of void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And even in that, the presence of God was still present. It was still there. Paul chimes in on Jesus being a part of creation. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we see when he writes his letter to the church in Colossians, he says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Look at what he says. He said he existed before anything was created. And he's supreme in all of creation. He says, for through him, God created everything. He's basically echoing what John writes in John chapter 1. Through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and everything was created for for him. The word brings order to chaos. That's what we see taking place. That's what we see happening here. Our own personal lives are formless and void until God's word, until Jesus comes in to bring life and peace and beauty and order to our life. And we'll talk more about next week, man's response to the presence of God. But there's something all throughout scripture that's not hidden from us. We see it all throughout scripture. And that is that God, the word of God creates. The word of God is meant to create. But if the word of God is rejected, sin will come in to destroy. We see a picture of this take place with Pharaoh. When when Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him to let the people, let the nation of Israel go. Pharaoh rejects the word of God. And then immediately God begins to bring plagues. The first plague that starts is that the Nile turns to blood. And you begin to see an unraveling of creation take place in these plagues. The Nile turns to blood and that destroys the natural ecosystem of the Nile. Then you've got frogs. Then you've got insects. Then you've got disease. Then you've got destruction. Then you've got death. It is an unraveling of creation that's taking place. Why? Because the word of God was rejected. And when the word of God is rejected, sin will come in to destroy. That's what sin and rebellion does. But from the beginning, we see it. God's love and his power and his presence still exists even when there's darkness. So God... He created the world out of nothing, out of his love, the Trinity involved together in creation. And he created man to reflect that. See, God didn't create, what we're seeing is God didn't create because he was lonely. God created out of the overflow of his love and for us to exist in relationship. When we're created in the image of God, our lives are more fulfilled. When we understand we're created in the image of God, we understand our lives are more fulfilled when we're, when we're living in love and community with God, our creator, and with each other. 
And it also means that because we come from God, our meaning is found in God. Our purpose is found in Him. You are not an accident. If anyone's ever told you that, if you've ever felt like that, you are not an accident. You were made by Christ for Christ. That's how Paul puts it. You are divinely designed by a creator who loves you. So you are not made by accident to just live by chance. You are made by Christ to live for Christ. I talked about it in the last several weeks. C.S. Lewis, I just love his story. But he makes this statement in his exploration of finding Jesus. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. You are made by Christ for Christ. So you will find your place in life when you find yourself in the Father, in your Creator, through Christ. Everything is in Him and exists for Him. Now, very quickly, as we wrap up this morning, I want us to see God created us. He created man and he created man with a purpose. He gave him a purpose. Genesis chapter two, verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend it and to watch over it, to cultivate it, to do work, right? Work was not a part of the punishment that came with the curse of sin, right? Sometimes we might look at our work and we say, oh, this is punishment. Work was not the curse, Work existed before the curse. Now, you you do have toilsome labor because of the curse of sin. But here's what we, we need to understand. Man's relationship with work changed because of the fall of man. The relationship between work, between us and work, was for us to give glory to God. It was for us to point to God. It's for us to do good for others. But what happened with after the fall is our relationship changed between us and work. And work now becomes a form of identity and idolatry. It's where we get, it's who, well, you know, our, we define our worth by what we do. That's why we always ask the question, well, what do you do? That's our first question. Because we feel like that's what defines our worth. Our security is found. In what we do. If we lose what we do, we think we have no security from here on. That's what happens in the fall in our relationship with work. And the enemy would love nothing more than for us to take our work. And instead of saying, hey, look at God and worship him. The enemy wants us to take our work and say, hey, look at me and be impressed. And so what happens is we're making work a God. We have created an idol, but work is a terrible God. And I think most everyone in this room would agree, right? But so what does that mean? mean? We need to rethink and and, and understand that we need to let Jesus repurpose our work in the way we see our work. And we need to make it a statement about the worthiness of God. And we should use everything, every opportunity we have as we cultivate what's around us for his glory. We do it also to serve others. You've been given a gift. You've been given a gift to develop the creation around you in a way that glorifies God and benefits others. Let the way you work get the world's attention 
for God. Not a, not, don't let your work be about putting the attention on you. And don't proclaim the name of God and then let your work be a terrible testimony. Right? Let your work bring glory to God because it, it's an opportunity. Like we said, cultivate the creation around you for his glory, to bring attention to him, to serve others, and to advance the mission of God. I've heard one church in North Carolina, they word it this way, the work that we do can be done for the glory of God and it can be done somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Now, I want, us, I want you to consider, just consider these thoughts. 39 of the 40 miracles in the New Testament took place in what we would call the workplace or marketplace outside of a synagogue or a temple or a church building. Of the 52 parables that Jesus told, 45 had workplace context. None of Jesus' 12 apostles come from the school of rabbis. They were all what we would call businessmen, right? And what's phenomenal to me is to see guys who are in the business world to recognize the call of God that's on their life. And maybe God takes that call and he continues to work through them in the place of businesses that they're, that they're in. Maybe God takes that call and uses the wisdom that they've gleaned from the businesses that they've been in to use for his kingdom in a different avenue. We don't know what God can do. But I want you to think about this fact. God has created in you and purposed in you and put a gift in you that you can use that gift to bring him glory. And it can be done here. It can be done across the world. I want you to think about this. I'm not challenging you to consider missions, but I'm challenging you to open yourself to the spirit and let the spirit use you however he longs to use you. But missiologists who look at the nation of the world around us and bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nation of the world around us, they have, they refer to what's called a 1040 window. You've probably, maybe you've heard of this term before. And this 1040 window is primarily made up of Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist. It's the hardest nations to get the gospel of Jesus Christ into. And here's what they say. They say that these unreached mission areas seem to be custom designed by God, is their, is their words, for kingdom-focused businessmen and businesswomen to take the gospel of Jesus Christ into those areas that others can't get into. And these areas are some of the poorest areas all throughout our world. These countries have concentrations of the highest concentrations of the world's poor. Unemployment ranges from as low as 30%, but to as high and more commonly as 70%. One source said that 50% of those that are unemployed are those who are young adults just getting started in their life, needing to find employment. They say that those unemployment rates are likely just going to continue to soar in the coming years. Some of the estimates are that are up to 2 billion young people are without jobs. And in the coming years, those numbers are going to multiply by the millions. When you look at just Iran, Iran, a scary place, a place that is completely closed off to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Iran has at least 10 million unemployed. And in the next 15 to 20 plus years, that number is going to exponentially grow by the millions, researchers say people searching for jobs. Now we see this happening across our nation as well. 
But from a missiologist, from missionaries' perspectives, what they're saying is that the world is being opened up, not just to church planners, but to business people. God created the world out of nothing. He created it. And he created you in his image. And he put you here to cultivate his creation and the world around you for his glory and for the good of others. Now we're going to see next week sin comes in and throws a wrinkle. But God doesn't do anything without a plan. And the one who had a hand in making you came to save you. He came so that through God's spirit, you can be made a new creation and connect again to the Father and be repurposed for Him to reflect again His image and His glory. We're to be bearers of the Word. To take that Word into the world. A world that's full of darkness. It's full of chaos. But to walk into that darkness carrying the presence of God and speak the word that is a gospel of peace and light and life. And I realize you might have to get creative in how you do that. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, He can use you. Where there is brokenness in this world, there should be the church. Because the church carries the light and the life of Jesus Christ. The Word who was there in the beginning when everything got started in all of creation. Stand with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you today for your word. We thank you that you are the word, Jesus, and you bring life to us speak into the chaos of our life and you bring order. Father, I just ask you today to do just that. That anyone that might be here today or watching online, that you bring peace and life and order to where there might be chaos today. Help them to find what they need in you. And we thank you for that today, God. Father, I pray for anyone in this room today that has not experienced the salvation grace of Jesus Christ. The saving grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that today they would realize just what was said that the one that had a hand in creating this world came to save them today. So all the darkness and the confusion and the sin that's been in their life, Father, you can redeem them from that through Jesus Christ. I pray today that they would find a way to express their need for you. That they would confess you today as Lord of their life. 
that they would lay aside the things that they're putting on a throne, but they'll make you Lord of of their life. Father, I pray today that as we live this life, that we will find a way of how you want to use us to cultivate the world around us in a way that brings you glory, that doesn't put the attention on us, but puts the attention on you. And that we do good for others. God, you want to work a miracle in someone's life and we might get to play a part in that miracle just by speaking the name of Jesus into someone's life and into someone's situation. So God, we ask you today to use us, to work through us. And we thank you for it today. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.